Good morning. Oh, man. Tough crowd. No. Good morning. Oh, that's the spirit. Okay, today we're going to talk about 10 plagues. Okay. That didn't sound right. Let me check. Yeah. That's really the topic, but it's a really good topic, I promise you. Um, We've been talking about the book of Exodus and the Word of God, and it's definitely one of the parts of this story that I think it's going to get to us in some ways, but thankfully is the Word of God working in our hearts. So I'm very excited about bringing the Word of God to you this morning. Um, If you don't know me, my name is Ruben. My wife and I, Gabby, we're the pastors of Riverside Lisbon. And we love to see this house filled with people that we haven't met before, with people that are passing by Lisbon, people that are moving into Lisbon. So if that's your case, feel free to make this your home church. Feel free to be uh, part of this community, this loving community that so much wants everyone to know that Jesus is love and that he has a plan and a purpose for their lives. And as I've said, and we're dwelling in this book of Exodus in the Word of God, and it tells us this story of how God miraculously delivers the people of Israel out of slavery. And it's a very powerful story. And today it is just as powerful as it was 3,500 years ago. And as usual, we do a small recap so you don't feel like you're just arriving at season four of the story. So the recap is we have a savior of the story that is God. Anytime you read about a savior in this story about the Bible, it's God. God himself, he is the savior. We have few heroes. The main hero here is Moses. He has a sidekick, Aaron. We have the oppressed people. It's Israel. And we have the oppressors, Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. Now in this story, in this back and forth so far, God and Moses are telling Pharaoh, let my people go. But Pharaoh doesn't want to let Israel go. So things got kind of stuck last week. Moses was super down. Things weren't moving anywhere. Things weren't getting any better. But at the point of the story that we reach today, it's now time to go. It's time to tell Pharaoh... It's time to tell Egypt that God does not take no for an answer. And so we're going to read and start reading in Exodus chapter 7. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, feel free to follow. If not, we'll read also from the screen. So this is what the word says. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my division, my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know That I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. 
The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down their, his staff and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. If we continue to read this chapter, we would see that God was about to bring 10 different plagues that would devastate the land of Egypt. And we have so much to talk about these different plagues, but first I want us to have a good look in this context that is given to us by chapter 7. In verse 6 it says, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Verse 10 says, so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. I want us to have a really, really good look at the obedience of Moses and Aaron. Because what we've seen so far, and everything that uh, we've been preaching so far in this story of Moses, is Moses questioning God. Is Moses making excuses? Is Moses looking for a way out? God, you have the wrong guy here. God, I don't know how to speak. God, you better bring someone else to the plate. And here we suddenly see Moses and Aaron acting in quick and complete obedience to God. What a difference is Moses in chapter 7 from previous, verse, from previous chapters. And that can only be the work of God in Moses. And that can only be the work of God in us. Not because we're trying the very best to please God, to do His will in our lives. But it is the Spirit of God that is doing the work in the heart of Moses. It is the Spirit of God that is convincing him, that is shaping him. In the presence of God, we were just singing, we are undone. God is changing the way that we are. God is changing the way that we act. God is changing the way that we feel. God is changing the way that we think because we're being made in the image of His Son, Jesus. In his presence, we are undone. And Moses living in the presence of God. Now we're able to see everything that God was doing inside his heart. All that fear, all those questions, all those doubts, everything that was in between him and the will of God for his life. All of a sudden, Moses did just as the Lord commanded them. They did everything just as the Lord commanded them. So beautiful to see. Now in this part of the story, we also see the power of Satan. And I know that we don't often say his name. We, we dislike even saying that name. But he's real, and he's part of this story. Jesus calls him the ruler of this world. And Jesus also says in the Bible that Satan is at work. And you can see in this part of the story who was at work trying to complicate things for Moses and Aaron. And as you can see here, Satan is using people. 
And he will use as many false and deceiving tactics as he can. Satan has real power, but it's not absolute power. But he has power. The Bible says that he's a roaring lion seeking those who he may devour. The Bible says that we, the church, the body of Christ, we're fighting against his spiritual powers and principles. He has some power. Enough power that he can fool people, that he can frighten people, that he can affect people's lives. And in this context where he shows his ugly face, Pharaoh wanted to see something. And God knew that Pharaoh was going to challenge Moses. I want to see something. Prove yourselves that the God that you're following is the one true God. Don't come to my presence and just say, hey, God told me this. Prove it. And God, in his mercy, in his kindness, he showed him a sign. God shows his power. But notice that Satan, through his power, they did the same. These sorcerers, these magicians, they did exactly the same. And that's the tactic of the devil. But the Bible says that they did the same. It wasn't exactly the same. It might look like the same thing, but it's not the same thing. Because Aaron's staff swallowed these other magicians' staffs. Satan cannot create. Satan can only corrupt. Satan is the counterfeit. Satan is the knockoff artist. He says things to people that seem to be true, so this is all about you. What God wants more than anything is you to be happy. You need to choose happiness over anything in life. You need to do what feels right for you. And we listen to these lies and we take them as truth. He fools people, people into thinking that they're happy when they're actually not. Because those feelings that he gives, they never last. Whatever he does... He's not looking out for your good and for my good. But thankfully, in this story, we can also see God's power at work. We can see God's power overpowering the works of Satan. Can you imagine the sight of this miracle? I know one person that the moment that Aaron would throw his staff on the ground, she would flee away. It would be my wife. Even me telling this story this morning, in a way, it's a good thing that she's not here, even though that's not true. I would love for her to be here, but my wife couldn't be with us this morning. But just the fact that I'm telling this story about snakes, she would leave this auditorium immediately. She even hates the sound of the word. So don't talk about snakes to her. This is her secret, but please respect that because she will not. She can be a bit violent when it comes to <laughs> trying to get away of the topic. But imagine, imagine seeing this. And while we saw this miracle playing out, Pharaoh could have said, okay, God, you got me. There's nothing I can do. You are the one true God here, and I need to submit to you. 
The Egyptians, when they actually believed in their religion and their uh, philosophy that by swallowing something, they would acquire its power, God is showing and trumping that nothing is bigger than God. Nothing is higher than God. If there's a theme to Exodus, it could be the Lord is glorious above all gods. So yes, Satan has real power, but no absolute power. And God is there to trump Every single thing that Satan does. Doesn't matter how bad it, doesn't matter how ugly, doesn't matter how terrible things look in people's lives because of what Satan did, God can undo everything that he does. There's no limit to the power of God. The power of Jesus and the gospel will always trump darkness. Yet Pharaoh didn't believe. People love a sign They love to see something happening. And even Pharaoh asked for it. But signs alone cannot convince people. And surely they can't bring people to repentance. Now we read what God said. And I know that some of you already know this story. And you read these verses and, okay, what is happening here? This is, doesn't look like the God that I know. But we read that God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will not listen to you. God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he wouldn't listen to Moses and Aaron. And what comes after every plague that we're going to see is either Pharaoh hardening his own heart, or God hardening even further the heart of Pharaoh. Because God didn't harden the Pharaoh's heart one, once and for all. It was a process. In some of these moments, in some of these encounters, especially between the plagues, Pharaoh could have decided, well, this is just not worth it. This has to be the work of the greatest God there is. I cannot defy this amazing God. I cannot stand a chance before this great God. But still, the Bible says Pharaoh chose as well to harden his own heart. The times that God hardened Pharaoh's heart are simply clear indications that God had enough of Pharaoh's stubbornness. Can you imagine God saying, enough? God is a God that is able to say enough is enough. We cannot plague dummy with God. We cannot make God a fool. We cannot play with God in our own lives. There will always be a moment sooner or later that God can righteously say enough. And God was saying that to Pharaoh's stubbornness. He had given Pharaoh enough opportunities, and now it was about showing his judgment over the people who enslaved and massacred his people for over 400 years. And the Bible goes through these 10 plagues, nine plagues, and one we can call ultimate plague. And we read, and we're going to see these plagues, what they were all about. And we ask God, why are you doing this? 
God, I thought you were a good God. God, I thought that you only did good things to people. What is happening here? But as we unpack, I want you to understand that God wanted both the Egyptians and the Israelites to understand that he is God and there is no other God. The point of these plagues is to show the Egyptians, is to show his own people and to show the world to over 5,000 years, 6,000 years after, that's the time that we're living today, that there is no other God than the Lord our God. He is sovereign over all creation. He is sovereign over all things. Did you know that the Egyptians worshipped over 1,400 different gods and goddesses? 1,400 gods and goddesses. And something so interesting that I learned recently is that each one of these plagues is targeting a different Egyptian god, a different Egyptian goddess. The gods that the Egyptians believed they were, they were sovereign over creation and sovereign over different aspects of their lives. God is saying, and especially we're going to see almost every, after every single play, God is saying, I do this so that they may know that I am God. By this, they will see that only I am God. So let's see. What these plagues are all about. In the first plague, the river Nile turned to blood. And the Egyptian god that is targeted was Happy, the god of the Nile, the fertility god known as the giver of life. And it, the, there was an annual flood of the Nile that allowed that whole land to be fertile. And what this caused was it killed all the fish and made the water unusable, devastating the economy. And God is saying, this is how you will know that I am the Lord. In the next plague, it was the plague of frogs. And don't you know it? The Egyptians, they had a frog god named Eket, the god of fruitfulness, the god of fertility. And the frogs invaded all the homes and they later died. And the Egyptians believed frog, the frogs to be sacred. And God said, by doing this, by this, you will know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The third plague was the mosquitoes plague. And they had a god of the desert, because the Bible says it was the sand from the desert that turned into mosquitoes. So the dust of the desert turned to mosquitoes and swarmed over everything. And that's the first plague that the Egyptian sorcerers couldn't duplicate. The fourth one, the flies. They had the god of the flies, the goddess of the flies, the lady of the swamps. And flies swarmed the Egyptians and made life unbearable. And by, the Bible says, God said, by this you will know that I, the Lord, uh, am in this land. The fifth plague, the diseased livestock, appeased the bull god, the god of fertility and economic success. All the Egyptian cattle died. Devastating the economy even further. Plague number six, boils. 
The, the, the gods of health and disease were defeated though, because those boys covered the bodies of the Egyptians and kept the sorcerers away from the royal court. The seventh plague, hail. Not the sky goddess Osiris, the crop fertility god, and set the storm god. They were all defeated because hail and fire ruined the Egyptians' land. And God said, then you will know that the earth belongs to the Lord. Eighth plague, locusts, men the patron of crops, Isis, goddess of life, Napri, the god of grain, Anubis, the guardian of the fields, Senehem, the divine protector against pests, like the fields needed all these different gods. But through the locusts, it, they devoured the Egyptian crops, preventing a harvest for that year. And God is saying, tell them about the miracles I did among them, so that all of you will know that I am the Lord. The ninth plague, darkness. One of the most important gods in Egypt, Amon Re, the god of the sun, he was symbolic of Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh was called the son of Re. But the Bible says, darkness covered Egypt for three days. But the Israelite home still had light. God can use both the power of His grace and the power of His judgment to let people know that He is God. God can use both the power of His grace and love and kindness and mercy and miracles and healing and all those amazing, beautiful things that we know that He wants to do, that He's capable of doing, to show that He is God. But God can also show this world that He is God through the power of His judgment. We will talk about the 10th plague next week. So God brought judgment on Pharaoh in Egypt righteously because of their sin. And I invite you to read these chapters. I invite you to read this in detail. It's a Sunday morning. We don't have time to go through every single thing about it, but please do read God's word. And see everything, how God is working, how God is trying to bring people to repentance. But as you read this, it will be tangible to you that God is a God that hates sin. God is a God that cannot stand sin. Why? Because there's nothing good in sin. There's nothing loving in sin. There's nothing about God in sin. Sin is everything that God is not. Sin is anti-God. And I know that sometimes we struggle to understand, so what are the things that God doesn't want? What are the things that God hates? What are the things that God thinks are despicable, that He cannot stand? Well, the Bible talks about sin quite a bit. If you read, and, and I invite you to read especially the New Testament, it tells you in detail the kinds of things that have nothing to do with God's heart. But just giving you an example so that we have some context 
of how sin happens today and how sin can corrupt our own lives today, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10 say, Don't you know that wicked people won't inherit God's kingdom? So people that are wicked, people that sin, cannot live in the presence of God. They cannot be part of God's kingdom. So stop deceiving yourselves. People who continue to commit sexual sins, who worship false gods, those who commit adultery, homosexuals, or thieves, those who are greedy or drunk, who use abusive language, or who rob people, will not inherit God's kingdom. And this is not an exhaustive list. There's different sins and sins that come after these words as well. Sin can take all sorts of shapes and formats. But everything that sin is, is what God isn't. Now, this can be very hard to understand. Because we also know, we know from God's word that God loves people. God hates sin, but God loves people. And it may feel like a paradox, and it is in a way a paradox, but because if he loves people and if there's something that people do all the time is sinning, well, doesn't he love us? Doesn't he love these people that commit these things? So how do we reconcile this? How can a God that loves people hate sin and therefore bring judgment on people? And God addressed the problem of sin and people by sending his son Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, Jesus took our sins he took everything that was ours, and on the cross, he broke the power of sin over people's lives. So that everyone that believes in him, as God's great, greatest gift of salvation for everyone who believes in him, will be saved. And this is God's great mercy. This is God's great mercy. But one day, one day is coming that he is going to throw away from his presence both sin and sinners. And they're going to spend eternity away from God in suffering. That's God's judgment. The biggest mistake we can do in life is to interpret God's love for people as a permission to sin. The greatest mistake we can do in life is taking God's love and mistake it for, to downplay the consequences of sin in people's lives. God loves people, but he hates sin. And if people continue to commit sin, if they don't stop, if they don't repent, this is what's going to happen. 1 Peter 2.16, and I hope this is a timely reminder for all of us this morning. Don't use your freedom as an excuse to sin. 
Sin is still sin. And it still offends the heart of God. And God will not have sin in his presence. This is a still valid gospel principle. This is a kingdom of God principle. There is mercy abounding for those who repent and trust God for salvation. And there is judgment awaiting those who don't. God takes both grace and judgment very seriously. So much that he sent his only son to be the savior of the world, to die in our place so that we don't have to die in our sins. That's how serious his mercy is. And he puts mercy and grace and judgment before us, before us all. And we are the ones that have to choose. Until today, God is graciously calling people to repent and to trust in Jesus for salvation. And like he did in Egypt, he will graciously go to extreme measures to get our attention. He will graciously go to extreme measures that kind of shout in our faces that we will know that only he is God. And now you may ask, but how is this gracious? How are these nine and tenth plagues gracious on God's side? Because what the Egyptians deserved for oppressing a people for over 400 years, for being the source of suffering, slavery, and mass murder from babies to grown people, would have been a lot more than these nine to ten plagues. Completely destroying Egypt, that would have been a perfectly just penalty. That's why these plagues are a sign of grace. Because God is speaking to people and until today he's shouting from heavens. That he is the only God that deserves to be worshipped. That only He is the God creator of the universe. That He is the only God that we should be following and fearing. That only He is God provider of, over all the earth. That only He is love and kindness and grace and mercy that we all need in our lives. The sufferings we see in life are nothing by opportunities of His grace for us to acknowledge the God. That he is. Extreme measures can look like so many things in our lives. And if it, at some point we ourselves start deceiving ourselves with sin. That God is okay with sin. The world has changed. Morals have changed. Society has changed. God cannot ask us to live with the same morality uh, like people 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago. That's so retro. That's so unnecessary. People can start deceiving themselves. That sin is fine. And God will graciously allow our sins to start affecting our lives 
He will graciously allow sin to be found out in us. And one thing that you may know about sin, sin is destructive. And as it starts affecting our marriages, our families, our businesses, our health, you will know its power. But the only reason why God allows this to happen is to save our marriages, is to save our families, and ultimately to save our own souls from eternal death and destruction. God says in Revelation 3.19, I correct and discipline everyone I love. Take this seriously and change the way you think and act. If and when it happens in your life, don't see it as God being mad at you. See it as a good father doing what he can to get your attention back. He loves us way too much to see us walk in this path of self-destruction. Don't hate God because things are not turning out how you want to. Don't hate God because He's exposing the sin and its consequences in your life. God is doing what He knows is effective so that we can turn to Him and repent from our sins. To change our ways. God corrects and disciplines everyone he loves. God loves you way too much. To, let, let's, to see your life being disaffected by sin. The same God that blessed the obedience of Moses. The same God that has power to defeat Satan. The same God that can use extreme measures to get our attention. He is the God that never changes. He is the God that loves you. He is the God that protects you. He is the God that is with you through life's struggles. He is the God that has great plans and beautiful plans for your life. That sin might try to come and destroy. He might come and fool you. He might come and deceive you. But God is the God that is the Redeemer. He is the God that saves you. And He saves you from sinning. And He saves you before you even start sinning. And I know that we can be tempted. And we, every day we are tempted to go against the will of God. I want to invite the worship team to come. The word of God still proclaims. I love this verse in Second Chronicles. Come back to the Lord. Come back to the Lord. The Lord your God is kind and merciful. He will not turn away from you if you return to Him. The Lord your God is kind and merciful. It doesn't matter what your life looks like today. 
It doesn't matter how confused you are about the way that you're doing things. It doesn't matter the decisions that brought you up to this point where you feel that you have no value, that you have no purpose, that you don't know any other way to go. The Bible says that God is kind and merciful. He's not looking out to punish you. He's looking out to bring you back to him. So the word of God is saying, come back to the Lord. He will not turn away from you if you return to him. You don't have to make everything correct, everything right, according to his standards in order to come back to him. You just have to come. Come to him as you are. And he can make everything new in your life. His mercy can transform you. His grace can make you new. In his presence, everything is made new. We were singing about this. And you can be made new in the presence of God this morning. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Will you stand with me this morning? As we sing and as we continue meditating in God's word, let me pray that the Holy Spirit will unveil the things in your heart that might be in deep darkness, that might be so hard to fix, God is here. And the word of God says where the spirit of God is, there is freedom. And there is freedom awaiting for you this morning. Let's sing and let's praise the Lord.